1: Toyota, can I help you? Do you still have the one Camry? This is the Camry One
0: event. There's more than one, and with available features like JBL Audio and... Only one. Got it. No, Camry One. Maybe if you come to the dealership.
1: Right. Don't want someone taking the one Camry. Ooh, is it red? I really hope it's red. Wait, surprise me. Get a great deal on the one Camry that's right for you at the Camry One event. Get $2,500 customer cash, or qualified buyers get 0% APR for 72 months on a new 2016 Camry. Toyota. Let's go places. Visit GSTOffers.com for details. Offers available in select states and N7516.
0: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Ruer, your host, so happy to be with us for this episode. My guest is Kevin Pelton of ESPN Insider, and the two of us mostly talk about Summer League, the rookies who've done well, the sophomores who may or may not have done well, and everybody else. And then we also talk about the league as a whole because Kevin and I put together, can't really prevent that, the episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. It's a fantastic service. And if you go to blueapron.com slash GM, you can get your first three meals free. So it's a great way to try it out. And hopefully you love it as much as I do. The interview with Kevin Pelton runs about an hour 15. And I hope you really like it. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: As much as it's been fun to talk about transactions and everything, I think the other kind of big storyline of the last couple weeks has been actually seeing a lot of the young guys play. And so now all three summer leagues are complete. And I I kind of see three different groups of evaluation. And you you touched on this well in in your insider piece. And so I I think I want to start, though, with the rookies, where we're really getting to see if they can play. And I, I think we have to start at the top. What did you like and not like about Ben Simmons?
1: Uh, You know, I think there was a lot in both categories, probably, it's fair to say. Uh, I saw him play, I want to say six times out of the seven games he played, uh, twice in Salt Lake City, and then I guess, or three or four in in Vegas, so five or six times total. And, you know, from from the first moment you see him, first off, I think... his uh, His size was more striking in person, particularly in Salt Lake City, where you're you're sitting courtside and have more of a, a sense for the scale of the game. I think than, than you can get a lot of the time and particularly as compared to watching on TV uh, so that that really stood out his size, and then obviously his court vision. You know, one thing we saw more of, I would say, in Salt Lake City is him kind of whipping cross-court passes when the defense tilts his direction, uh, you know, when he's isolated or out of a pick-and-roll, which is a really valuable skill and, and, as I mentioned, something that basically only LeBron James does in the NBA right now. In Vegas I would say it was more of the drive and dish or uh you know, finding guys operating from up top, He uh, found a lot of cutters back door. But that that court vision is obviously going to be, you know, perhaps his biggest strength. I, I guess I was surprised that he wasn't more effective as a scorer, even though, you know, that that wasn't the strength of his game at L S U. And uh, you know, yeah, obviously not a shooter at all, but then is going to have to work as a finisher too. I mean, does that uh, that match up with what you saw?
0: It does. I think what struck me about him was how different he is than a lot of really good players. Because I I tried to develop a comp for him. And I just kept on bouncing between different guys because there's a part of him that I think is more like Ricky Rubio where it's just that he such, has such great vision and such a great passer but is just at this point not a threat as an individual scorer but he's a good enough passer that it makes sense. And But he's different because he's so much bigger and he's not LeBron. Like LeBron as an all-around player was just such a different type of guy even at the same age. And what I do really like about Simmons is something that as somebody who, who covers the Warriors I got to see a lot with Draymond Green which is that when a player of that size has the ball with a man advantage, like the four-on-threes after the teams would trap Curry, what Draymond would often do is drive the lane not with the intention of scoring, but with the intention of passing. And what happens in that case is that when somebody that big is driving for the basket, people can't help themselves from reacting to that. And Simmons is probably the best player I've seen since other than LeBron at hitting those seams immediately when they're created.
1: Although the one thing is I, I do think we saw defenses start to adjust. I mean, certainly in Salt Lake, people were playing him fairly straight up, and I think that was the, the case the first game in Vegas as well. And then after that, or actually, yeah, after the, the Lakers-Sixers shut out in his first game in Vegas, he did seem to, to see defenses start to adjust and, and stay home and, and try to force him to score. And in the, the next game they played after that, Simmons versus Ingram showdown. That was probably his best scoring game, where he was taking advantage of that uh, the fact that the defenses were staying home. Then after that, I, I don't think he was able to do that, and it, it resulted in a lot of missed shots and turnovers,
0: including the game where he decided he wanted to try to make his jump shot happen, and it really didn't.
1: That I think was, I, I, yeah, I guess I'm forgetting the order of things here yeah, now.
0: That was, I think, that was a game or two after the Lakers game, um, where he just just decided, okay, I'm just going to shoot a bunch of jump shots, and it didn't work, but. You know but the other part about it is when you see a guy who's young and and who's talented like him what he is a player, and this is true of everybody, but I think it's more true of him than a lot of high end guys. Maybe Wiggins is in the same camp where he's going to have to improve a lot to be a relevant n b a player and that's the way everybody should think about it, but you know that that is going to be a challenge for him
1: i mean and that's to be expected for any nineteen year old coming into the league uh, other than maybe Carl Towns,
0: yeah. And, and he will improve a lot, too, which is, which is horrifying to basically <laughs> everybody. So you talked a little bit about, just mentioned the Simmons-Ingram showdown. And Ingram is fascinating to me as well because I can see glimmers of what I think a lot of other people see in him right now. But for me, it is more in the flashes form than in the possession-by-possession possession impact.
1: Yeah, I, I thought his first game in Vegas was impressive in terms of we saw him handling the ball more, creating his own shot, and then saw the court vision that uh, I think people like Mike Schmitz talked about with, with our mutual friend Nate Duncan before the draft. He didn't really get much of a chance to show at Duke because, understandably, he was just a part of the offense. They weren't featuring him a lot. And so that that was something I think that was encouraging to me, but we also saw... You know, that he was probably not one of the 10 best rookies in Vegas, I think it's is reasonable to say. You know, he's, he's got some work in front of him, which is fine. Because he's the youngest American player in the draft. I mean, he's much younger than most of the guys he's playing against even in summer league. So you understand that he's got even more room to develop than Simmons, who's about a year older, does. But he certainly, his size, his lack of strength, I think was seemed to be more of an issue for him in summer league than it was at the collegiate level.
0: Yeah, something I noticed, because I'm back in Vegas covering Team USA, and just so happened yesterday that I was on the court for him and D'Angelo Russell shooting a lot, and something I noticed with him is I think there could be a potential tweak to his shooting motion, because he drops the ball when he catches it, he drops it a little bit below his waist, and then shoots kind of over, over shoulder, and the over shoulder part is fine if you can repeat it, but... What I noticed about it was that it takes kind of a while because his arms are so long that going from below his waist to a normal shooting motion just takes a lot of time, and it's not a bad thing. It's not like he's—it's not like a Michael Kidd-Gilchrist situation where he's going to have to fix it. But I, I think that if he can do anything with that, there's some untapped potential there.
1: Yeah, and I think, yeah, it was one of the things that stood out during Summer League is the, the 40% knockdown three-point shooter we saw at Duke was was not the guy that Ingram was, which, you know, I think that is consistent with the fact that he, he wasn't as good a free-throw shooter, although his free-throw shooting at Duke was probably somewhat fluky in its own right. And uh just that wasn't his reputation coming out of high school as a guy who's a knockdown elite three point shooter. He's got a chance to get there and he'll he'll be a good three point shooter, but it's also gonna be an adjustment for him to the NBA line, I think.
0: Yeah, and the flashes idea that I talked about earlier is also was really noticeable to me on the defensive end, where you'd see him make a couple of really nice plays. Like he had one block that is standing out to me in my head because it was across it was across the court, and I saw the whole thing coming. It's like okay, if he can do that, there, then he, there's a lot of potential there. But then again, it wasn't a possession by possession impact, and some of that was the assignments he was getting, but. You want to see guys with his level of talent and his physical, just sheer length, because it's it is length, not size, right now. And I, I think that you want to see that more regularly, though. Of course, that can come with time.
1: Yeah, that's definitely not something you see a lot of with these guys in summer league. I think that's the exception. You know, maybe maybe guys like Justice Winslow, Chris, uh, Bondi, Hollis Jefferson. Did you you feel felt like Chris Dunn was that dominant defensively?
0: No, I felt I felt like you could notice it though. You know, like it wasn't yeah. it wasn't like it wasn't dominant in the same way, but it was like you could see. I think that's because he's such. You and you mentioned this in your piece. He's such a high motor guy that he's different. We'll talk we'll talk about him in a minute. But like with Ingram, yeah. you're right. You're right. It is it is a rare thing to see that. But you do want to see him get there, especially if he's not going to be your offensive linchpin. Like, you know, obviously those guys, the James Hardens, the Stephen Currys of the world, and even LeBron in the regular season, like, it's totally fine for those guys to lay off the accelerator on defense for 90% of the season. But one of the adjustments that I always like to see with guys, if they're not, you know, that guy, and, and Ingram could be. I'm not saying he's not is is that adjustment to okay now that I'm maybe not the best player on my team I need to be a force every second I'm out there in terms of effort
1: yeah and I guess the the one question I'm still left with about Ingram leaving Summer League is you know how does what's his path to becoming a special player because I I don't really see it
0: yeah I think it's at the 4 if if it happens just because his handle and his sense of the game I think will work a lot better there there's a parallel with Aaron Gordon in that way where when he's dealing with guys that at this point in the league ha- haven't dealt with as much off the ball as, as they have, and also I think he can move well off screens and all that, and he, it seems like he it seems like he has a good head on his shoulders in terms of movement. I think I think it has to involve that, and also depending on where the four position goes, I'm intrigued by him as a help defender in that way of being a guy who you know like can identify. Something's going on on the other side and just getting over there. He might leave his guy open a little more than, than he'd like, and that could be a problem moving forward. But I think that could be a good use of his length.
1: I, I think that's a good point, and uh, I don't know if you watched the, the Lakers-Cavaliers game, because I think that was after you were already back, but that was the first time that I recall that we really saw him play the four during Summer League with their second unit. So that was interesting to see.
0: Yeah, and depending on where they go in terms of centers, I mean, obviously they just signed Mozgov for a ton of money. We'll see that, and also, in some ways, that is going to be an interesting nuance in the Lowell Dang thing because I think you and I both were very impressed with Dang as a four in Miami, and depending on how they divvy up the assignments for the time that he's playing with Ingram, which I think will be, you know, not all the time but somewhat significant, that will be fascinating, and then if Ingram is playing with Julius Randle, he's a straight three.
1: Right. It seems like Dang is going to probably play a lot more three since you do have Randall and Larry Nance, the uh, the most popular player in summer league at that position. But we'll, we'll see sometime probably where those two guys are on the court together.
0: One guy who apparently, well, from what I saw as well, looked a lot better after I left was Jalen Brown, who is still a tantalizing guy, but showed a lot more in his last
1: couple games. He did, yeah. He he, his uh, first really good game was when I wasn't watching him, so I made a point of seeing him the next day to see that carry over. And you know, he's he's obviously been a uh, a source of disagreement, I guess, uh, on on podcasts uh, (laughs) since since our buddy Nate Duncan is such a big fan of his, and you're higher on him, I think, than I was, but I'm probably the lowest of the three of us on him. But you saw what people see in him in those those last couple of games in terms of his ability to get to the basket just pretty much whatever he wanted and be a problem in that way and then you know also have an impact with his physical tools at the defensive end of the court.
0: It was amazing to see because I went back and watched some of the be- some of the better games after I got back because I had you know his, he had a rough start, which a lot of guys do that 's not a big surprise and it was that you saw it on both ends, which is what was so encouraging to me, because his his defense was more active, and he had some really nice moments when he was at Cal as well, so this isn't a new thing for him. And offensively, yeah, I saw a little bit more of what Nate saw in him back at the hoop summit a couple years ago and things like that, where his handle looked better, and he has has a good sense of the floor, which is a very important thing when you're playing the three. And I, I mean, I still think that his weaknesses are still going to be a concern until he can prove that they're not. Just like with his shot, but he showed that he can be a positive. He can make a consistent positive impact even without it, which is a very nice thing.
1: The one thing I'd like to look at with him, and then this also affects Chris Dunn when we get to him, is you know how 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 it translates when guys draw a lot of fouls during summer league. Because obviously, you're guy playing against first off guys that are physically overmatched, and then you're you're playing with generally non-NBA referees who uh, are probably a little bit quicker to the whistle than uh, people would be during the regular season. So I, I, that is not something I wrote about when I looked at what translates from Summer League a few years ago for ESPN Insider. So I may want to go back and check that out.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I, I think we can move we can move to Dunn because he's not, and he wasn't next in the draft order, but he is notable in the sense that he only played in two games, right? Yes, only the first two. But they were two of the most fascinating performances of the, <laughs> of the entire tournament. And I mean that in, in a lot of ways. And one of them is just that he could get to where he wanted on the floor, which is huge. And his passing, you know, I, he's not at the level of, like, to me, of, of a real primary ball handler at this point. And that's okay. But getting to where he wanted and just the degree of confidence and aggression that he plays with is really conducive to summer league success, but is also just a nice thing to have as a foundational piece for a guy who's going to be in the league.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was too physically gifted, I think for the guys who was playing against and and had too much skill too. I I should include that as well. But some, something that, you know, you often talk about here about when you talk to scouts and coaches, evaluating point guards is do they have shake? And that's like the ability to, you know, Make a play off the dribble, beat their defender one on one, and that's like very literally in a literal sense. He's shaking back and forth. The the play where he dropped his defender, I forget now who it was. uh, Maybe Axel Tupon or Jakar Sampson. One of those guys. Jakar Sampson. Yeah. You you saw that and just his ability to get to the basket whenever pretty much he wanted in those games. And one of the interesting things, I think, was the fact that he was playing primarily with Tyus Jones who kind of took over as the lead point guard for the Timberwolves after Dunn went down. And the fact that you know, him playing off the ball does not necessarily mean that he doesn't get to play with the ball in his hands at all. Now, Ricky Rubio is not Titus Jones. He's not, he's not going to be as much of a threat when he's spotty up playing alongside Dunn. But it was interesting to this, from the standpoint of can those two guys maybe play together a little bit.
0: Yeah, it it was, and that will be a part of Dunn's kind of present and future, just in terms of while the Wolves suss out who they want to keep in their backcourt situation, if he can have that versatility. And I agree with you that it will be different with Rubio, just because the way, not only the way he doesn't shoot, but the way the defense is handled, that completely changes a lot of stuff for Dunn. As much as it was a small moment, and it really was, I, I am still, I still think back to. But Dunn had two kind of amazing highlights in that game against the Nuggets. One was shaking Jakar Sampson and making him fall over, which just doesn't happen that often and it is a notable thing in that sense just because that's a lot of a lot of shake. And then the other one was the Wolves were behind most of that game, almost all of it from what I remember. And Dunn hit a huge three and stared down the Nuggets bench despite the Wolves being down five. And you can take that as <laughs> a couple of different things. But I do think that there is a point where swagger actually matters and that he's somebody who just feels that. And, like, I mean, there's a parallel, I think, in some ways to Kyle Lowry, who has honed that and kind of focused that to help drive him become a better player.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess that's one of those things that kind of gets lost when you look back, is there was like a. a controversy of sorts on on Twitter after that game about whether Dunn was celebrating too much and, and playing to the crowd too much, which is a weird question in Summer League, but I guess one that is asked at times. The other thing that stood out we haven't really talked about is just kind of his power around the basket. So it's yeah. not just the quickness to get there, but the power once he is there. And, the you know, the, he had a play where I'm not sure where this is ultimately where he's sustained the concussion. I think there may have been a second collision, but he... Drew Jakob Purtle into him and just kind of like finished up through him and made the basket for an end one on a play where Purtle ended up hurting his nose and had to leave the game briefly. And, and to do that over a you know six eleven seven foot center is pretty impressive for a point guard.
0: It is, and the audacity to try it and to actually be able to do it is really impressive. And while Purtle isn't you know he isn't a mountain yet you know he's not that guy physically he's more he's more thin. He he certainly knows how to use his size and. With Dunn, I was thinking about this during the during that second game, the game against the Raptors, about how if and this is something one of my criticisms of of Minnesota's summer, if if you play him with his floor spacing five, I think he could work even better just because teams will have to figure out how to handle that. If his if his shake can really extend into the regular season, if he can drive but the help defense is gonna be a little bit different, that could really work to his advantage.
1: Uh, we're trying to keep this positive. Let's not too, talk too much about the rest of the Timberwolves' summer.
0: Hey, I like the Cole Aldrich signing. So yeah,
1: I mean they got they got good value, I, which I think was easier to find among front court players than it was among wings. But it is a little disappointing from the standpoint of us hoping to see them, you know, use counts as a stretch five.
0: New agey, yeah. The hope of a new agey Timberwolves kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. But a team that actually can do some really fascinating stuff, considering what they did in the draft and then in free agency. And we, I feel like we might as well talk about both their guys together. Are Bender and Chris? And I think I saw more from Bender than other people did, but it's hard to say that because I was higher on him than most people. So maybe it was confirmation
1: bias, which is always a danger in summer league, especially because you know maybe you see guys. I mean, I saw the bender i think four times ultimately but you know if you see guys once or twice and you happen to catch their best game or their worst game like that that can have an undue influence i think on what you think of uh, their entire performance so you know bender was really terrific in that first game that they played and then struggled a lot after that Uh, i guess the numbers weren't necessarily so different you know other than maybe he was a little more efficient offensively in that first game but You know, you just saw him making more plays and having more of an impact, whereas the next few games it felt like he was kind of just stuck out on the perimeter, shooting threes and struggling to complete the entry passes that I I think we expected to be kind of a strength for him. So it also seemed like he was, you know, a little physically tired at times and maybe that the uh, banging against uh, NBA-caliber athletes for extended periods of time as opposed to, you know, the The 10 minutes a game that he was playing last year in Israel was a bit of an issue for him. So I guess I would say that I'm not necessarily concerned about it in the long run unless the Suns do view him as a small forward down the road. But it definitely tempered my expectations for him this season.
0: Yeah, I, I think tempering expectations is a good word for it, because I, I think what I noticed about him in that first game was that I thought he moved well defensively, which is something that I always liked about him, that I thought that he could he could hold his own pretty well as a switching four, which is part of what made him so fascinating. And, I mean, I still love rim protection from a five, so I never really saw him that way. But if he could do that too, you know, be kind of a like a a second unit five that doesn't have to get, you know, beasted by the DeMarcus Cousinses of the world, that would be fine as well. Um, the shot is a little concerning, but that that to me isn't as big a thing. Like, I, there was an issue in terms of his, let's say, aggressiveness. But when you're, when you're playing the three, I remember this kind of related to Josh Smith when he was playing in Detroit. It's like, when you play a guy out of position in that way, it isn't always... As big of a thing if they're not really doing everything, because sometimes that's just you know that's what they're being asked to do in that way. And I think he's a straight four offensively. You know, if he can play the five, that's great. And what's it was interesting, and I watched some of his later games too about about his passing. Is early on I thought he did a nice job passing. You know, when he saw he would get the ball into spaces that usually guys of his size don't, and that was very encouraging.
1: Yeah, I think that was something that declined over the course of it. There was uh, a game where you know he had a tough time just throwing, like I said, entry pass. Successfully, so you know, I don't know what to attribute that to, but I think he will be better than that going forward.
0: I feel bad for Alex Len, considering Alex Len played in college with a Maryland team that had four guys who could not <laughs> give him an entry pass. So if he has that feeling again, that would not be great.
1: Well, you know, he probably is going to have at least one guy who can throw an entry pass this year in Tyler Ewles
0: yeah Eulis was impressive to me and and I think he got he also i think he got better in some ways as the week went on because his passing was always pretty solid but i thought he, his defense you know it 's different it 's not like it's it's a little bit more gambly than I generally like but when a guy is sub 510 sometimes you need that
1: yeah i mean he's just not going to be able to be a major defensive presence straight up except for uh you know pressuring the ball full court and doing that kind of thing so the fact that he can contribute something in terms of generating a lot of steals i think makes that a lot more palatable and uh you know it remains to be seen how much how legitimate the uh concerns about hip injury and the need to eventually have surgery on that are but for the last couple, for the last week and a half, he certainly looked like a major steal in the second round for the Suns in terms of you know a guy who just is a really crafty point guard operator, a guy who makes good decisions with the ball and you know is, is never going to finish well, but makes enough jump shots to keep the defense honest, and then is a great playmaker.
0: There are obvious reasons why people were concerned about his court vision, just because the, the difference with him and Ben Simmons. You know, Ben Simmons has an extra foot of height to evaluate where everything is. But what I noticed about Ulis in the first game and then kept on seeing throughout was that I, I like the phrase that Kenny Smith uses, but he uses it in a very different context about taking a picture. And it's like basically the idea of understanding kind of like where everybody is. And he would he would talk about it in transition offense. And Uless, I think, was kind of doing that all the time. So when he would do a drive, it's true. He wouldn't necessarily see when he was in the drive where everybody was, but he remembered and had a sense of where they were going to move. And so he could go in the air, kind of like under the basket, and he could make a pass, and the person would be in the right place. And considering it's summer league and guys don't do that very often, it was really
1: impressive. Yeah, it stands out because so many, so much of the time, you've got a point guard who, you know, can maybe create their own own offense, but has such a tough time making plays for others in this setting. And I think that's a big reason this Suns team was as good as it was was having Ulysses and his command of the offense and, and everything like that. So that that topic you mentioned taking a picture—that's something that's really starting to fascinate me because I, I think a lot of the term, what we call basketball IQ, quote unquote to, like, relate it to some sort of weird notion of non-basketball IQ is actually, it's really, first off, the ability to, I don't know if ability is even the right word here, but just the tendency to take a lot of pictures, move your head, like, be actually literally be seeing the court not from this like intangible court vision sense, but literally be seeing the court. And then the uh, memory and pattern recognition to know based on where guys are or what's happening, what's going to happen next. I think those are really the skills that when we talk about basketball IQ, that's really what we mean.
0: I don't mean to slam him in this way, but former son Gerald Green is a really good example of the opposite side of that coin.
1: <laughs> and then you have the guys who have tunnel vision and are just like narrowly focused on what's straight in front of them and, and how it affects their ability to score.
0: To go on a slight tangent, I have a theory with Gerald Green, and I really want to see if a team pulls it off this year, which is that there are some guys who are spacier defensively, and what I would love to see them do, teams do with them, is just give them a single assignment with no help responsibilities and basically say, this is your guy. And incidentally, the guy who I think about would actually work with some of them is Clay Thompson. And basically, your job is, you don't help on anybody. The problem with Clay is that he uses screens really well. But the idea of just basically giving them that assignment, and I think that could actually work as opposed to, and basically saying, we know you're not going to be a good team defender so don't be a team defender at all
1: i think of Dion waiters with this first off but second yeah. off oh, that a was a great you know, example yeah you know, this was essentially my role defending when we played pickup hoops in salt lake city several of us from the national media along with the utah media who, who normally play so i don't know what you're saying now about my help defense instincts <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, in that kind of a game where there isn't really much scheme stuff, I actually think that makes more sense as well. Switchi- I mean, those switching pick-and-rolls can actually be really effective in pickup if you have the right personnel, just because most guys can't shoot fast enough to take advantage of the switch. Speaking of switching, mm-hmm. we can't switch to another team before talking about your former Husky Marquise Chris.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, from Chris, the encouraging thing was he really rebounded pretty well in this setting, which was my biggest con- biggest single concern about him and my biggest question mark, I guess, about him because I wasn't sure how much of his incredibly poor defensive rebounding during his one year at UW was related to the fact that the Huskies switched pretty much everything. So he was often finding himself, you know, on the perimeter, on a guard 20 feet away from the hoop when uh, the shot went up, which obviously makes it a lot more difficult for him to rebound. And, you know, Nate has argued that that was a big part of his defensive rebounding issues, and I, I think that's probably the case, and the fact that he did so well here uh, indicates that. You know, Offensively, I think we saw more potential, certainly, than we saw production from him. He, he wasn't shooting the ball as well as he did at UW from the uh, NBA three-point line, so he was really mostly about finishing above the rim when he was successful offensively.
0: Yeah, and he did have that one really nice spin move. And it's funny how a single thing can work with you, but it's like you don't usually see that from a guy as raw as he is.
1: You know, skill-wise, he's not raw. It's really more, again, that pattern recognition, the fact that he hasn't played basketball for very long you know, he was a, a football player at the start of his high school career before basically getting too big to play that, you know, kind of similar to the stories of African players who grew up playing soccer. And it's just like, okay, there's no six 6'10 six, goalies, so now I'm going to have to play basketball. So he's got something similar to that where I think the process between seeing what's happening and understanding what's going to happen next is a beat slower for him than it is for someone who has been playing their entire life.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a good description of it for him, and it will will take him some time, but he has the physical ability, and I'm going to be fascinated to see what kind of he can do defensively just through recognition and also just with his physical ability, you know, whether he can play some you know i expect him the four to be his position but whether he can do some stuff outside of that would be fascinating because even if he could dance at the five for like five minutes a game that would give him a a greater offensive advantage than i but it would just be really hard physically
1: i think a lot of what we're going to see is kind of him in bender in concert like here they were playing mostly the three and the four when they were on the court together, in part because of the fact that the Suns had Allen Williams, who is one of the better players in this summer league setting, and you know we'll see if that translates uh, at some point on an NBA court. But you know I, I think though that they're going to be most effective, particularly as both of those guys get stronger and better defensively, as a four and a five.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Alan Williams is fascinating to me. Like he's the type of guy who I think, considering he has a, non- a non-guaranteed at present minimum salary, like I would definitely take a flyer on him at that. He was the, I believe, he was the leading rebounder for Vegas Summer League, and just a talented guy. And I think he can figure out more than he has and I'd love to see him get a real chance.
1: Yeah, I mean I thought he was I rated him my best rookie in Summer League last year when he was playing for the Rockets as an undrafted guy, I ended up going to China after that and put up predictably big numbers playing in the CBA and then you know when he did get a couple of chances late in the season with the Suns after signing with them, I thought he was impressive.
0: Yeah, I agree. And something else that has really impressed me is Blue Apron. I've actually been a subscriber of it for a few months now and I've been blown away by the quality of their products and it comes in a couple of different ways. For me, it has had the real benefit of adding confidence in the kitchen. I'm somebody who has had a passion for eating and for good food for a long time, but just didn't really have that experience making it myself. And Blue Apron has really helped me in that way, not only teaching me new ways to prepare food, but ways to appreciate that process. And I've really enjoyed that. And they also make it easier both through their instructions and through high quality ingredients. So you don't have to agonize at the store about what to get or worry about, let's say produce and identification, because they give that all to you. You can choose what you want to get. You can choose within a, within a, a variety of options, and so. You, uh, but it's good to go outside of your comfort zone. I've gotten a lot better at cooking seafood, which is not something that was really in my wheelhouse in terms of food preparation, and so Blue Apron can be revolutionary in terms of the way that you think about your own life and the way that you think about cooking, and it, it really has fundamentally changed things for me, and through Real Gym Radio is actually a great way to connect with it yourself because you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and you can get three meals for free and you can get free shipping. So it's it's really free. It's a great way of thinking about it. And so you can find some things that are great for you and hopefully you love the product as much as I do. And again, that URL is blueapron.com slash realgm. Now back to my conversation with Kevin Pelton. And I don't want to go robotically through the list and it's funny that I'm going to skip Buddy Heald for right now, but Jamal Murray... I'm still not exactly sure what he's going to be as a player, but his ability, and and a couple people have brought this up, including my frequent podcast partner, but his ability to set guys up on the pick and roll at his age is special.
1: Yeah, it's it's craft, is Nate likes to say. He's got a ton of that in the pick and roll, and none of it, it almost none of it, is uh, devoted to fighting the rule man. <laughs> it's almost all about his own ability to score. But it's still impressive at his age because you know the comparison that everyone makes for him, understandably, is C.J. McCollum, another guy who can handle the ball enough to play point guard, but really doesn't have that kind of mentality, and therefore has been more successful off the ball playing with a traditional point guard like like. Murray eventually will with uh, Emmanuel Moutier. But McCollum's first first summer league coming out of Lehigh is a four-year player. Like, he really struggled. He couldn't beat the trap. He was turning the ball over a ton. and was like, oh, this guy might not be able to play point guard at all was the takeaway from that. So for Murray to come in as a guy with a one-year of college experience, age 19, and be as effective as he was in that setting, I thought was impressive.
0: And this might be, you know, the, the bigotry, the false. I think it's the false bigotry of low expectations. But he wasn't as horrible defensively as I'd feared he would be.
1: I'm not enti- I mean I, I know where that comes from he does not have good lateral mobility and dealing with quicker players is going to be an issue for him but you know again that that pattern recognition that awareness and engaged nat- nature defensively can cover a lot of sins as a team defender and I think that's that's what we saw like he's he's never going to be a good one on one defender but he can be an okay defender overall I think
0: and I think if Moutier can take a couple steps defensively, which I've always believed in him, I've been a big Moutier fan for years now, if, is that if that can work, it's kind of the bizarro Gary Harris thing of, you know, like, basically, when Moutier and Murray play together, maybe you put Moutier on the better defensive guard, and then when, if they play Gary Harris as the other guy, and, like, when they switch it, then Gary Harris guards the better of the two.
1: But certainly the versatility of all three of those guys, size-wise, gives you a lot of options.
0: Yeah, and would Gary Harris? Do you classify as a guy who was too good for summer league? Because to me, I, I don't understand what he was showing. He, he's just a good player.
1: Yeah, that one is even more surprising. I think we did, we didn't talk about uh, Devin Booker in the Phoenix section partially because there was nothing really to glean from it. Because he's okay, he's really good. Yeah, we we know that we're we're good. Harris, like, but like Booker playing here, it like made some sense, I guess, in the standpoint that he was still a continuation of doing things that he did at the end of the regular season that he didn't do in college, certainly, or at the start of his rookie season. Harris, there wasn't, like, a unique role for him to play here. He was just, just kind of playing.
0: Yeah, and he was just so much better, you know, at doing it. it was, the parallel for me was maybe Norman Powell. Like, Norman Powell should not have been in Summer League. He, he already had a role. He was a rotation player on a playoff team that made the, that made the conference finals, and then he's in Summer League for some reason and just whooping people.
1: But Harris probably played the most minutes, I think, of anyone who played a minute during summer league, because he started 76 games and averaged 32 minutes a game, which is more even than I realized.
0: Wow, that is a lot. And I mean, he'll probably play less this year, considering his team drafted, I think drafted or acquired, like, three shooting guards. But I like Harris a lot, and he's still around because he's doing Team USA stuff, and I still like him. But yeah, I think, so... For rookies, I think what you're looking for, first of all, are the guys who are physically dominant, because that's always something that you can carry on. And then it's also just players that, that stand out. Maybe they do a single thing special or they, they have something to stand out. So was there anybody outside of the players that we've discussed that you know that had something that popped for you?
1: Let me see now. It's so many players that weren't I have one, I have one <laughs> while you're
0: looking, if you want.
1: <laughs> okay, go. Uh,
0: Juancho Heron-Gomez. Oh, yeah yeah, that's I love him like he he has a great sense of where to be on the floor. he has confidence in his jump shot like I, I'm not sure at this point that he'll be he's still young though, but like that he'll be a starter you know that he'll be that starting stretch for. but if you can get fifteen to twenty minutes from him as soon as like let's say next year, I think you'll you'll be very happy with those fifteen to twenty minutes and he could grow into something more than that. I never write off a guy, but i I love him. I think he's a really talented dude.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know he could play and not embarrass himself right now. Uh, That that's probably not going to be the case. Just when you look at the Nuggets roster and then their crunch there after re-signing Mike Miller, but he uh, was one of the more solid players I think during summer league uh, in terms of amongst the rookies. In terms of, he wasn't going to uh, do anything wrong. He wasn't going to first to do no harm. You know, he wasn't always doing good things, but he often was as an offensive rebounder and. just wasn't screwing anything up. So uh, let's move on with Patrick McCaw, maybe?
0: Yeah, he did well.
1: Yeah, so you look at an NBA skill in terms of his activity defensively. I don't know if he's there as a uh, lockdown, you know, one-on-one individual defender at this point, which I think you'd hope that he can grow into, but plays the passing lanes, generates a lot of steals, and then shot the ball pretty well generally during summer league.
0: Yeah, I, I was impressed with his overall impact, like for a guy who, you know, I, I had heard from, because I hadn't seen a ton, a ton of him playing at UNLV, that he, he was just a be- maybe a better player than where he was drafted, and he was just, you know, he was solid. His shot was better than I thought it would be. His, you know, he had a lot of steals in, in, the, in the portions that I saw, and I, I did really like him. I feel like we can't talk about all the Nuggets guys without talking about somebody who I, because I just love French centers, that going back a little bit to Peter Cornley, who I thought was very good.
1: Yeah, I had I didn't really know much about him except look at his translated stats, so it was interesting to get a look at him. And very athletic, uh, good finisher, when with pretty good hands on the move, I thought, in the pick and roll, and then a uh, productive shot blocker. So it's really just about building up uh, his frame since he is very skinny.
0: Did you like Bembry? I thought he looked pretty good.
1: He shot the ball better than I expected, which is an encouraging sign. I don't know if he stood out a ton to me when I watched him play. Torian Prince on his team. Boy, he has an NBA body. There is no question about that whatsoever. Really looked kind of out of place among the rookies in that regard. Like, he looks like someone who's been in an NBA weight program for a couple of years already. I thought it was interesting the Hawks had him try to create a lot of his own offense, which I don't think will be his role in the NBA.
0: And I think both of them either are or will be 22 in the near future, which is a little bit concerning, but hard—not absolutely not a death knell in any way. Considering we're seeing college guys, college seniors, and do really well and progress a lot in the league.
1: And that is one of the issues about talking about these guys as "quote unquote" rookies and lumping them in together. Well, yeah, obviously Chris Dunn is going to be different as a four-year guy than, you know, Brandon Ingram is going to be as someone who's still eighteen. Like, the, there's obviously a difference there. But another guy we, worth mentioning that we haven't touched on is uh, Ivica Zubac from the Lakers, who well, I, I think was, yeah, one of by far one of the most impressive second-round picks, and to me it looked like he could have gone, you know, middle of the first round with the skills he showed. Not only offensively, you know, we knew he had a lot of skill offensively, good touch around the basket, can step out a little bit. But, you know, I, I think was better defensively than advertised.
0: Yeah, I I, just, I I spent a little time trying to think about a comparable player for him because what I would say is kind of the, the boxes he checks. Um, I wrote a piece back early in the last year's season trying to do a comparison for Porzingis and one of the things I talked about was you know what are the boxes that you have to check and what I liked about him was that he's capable b- back to the basket he has a pretty solid mid range jump shot and he's a capable help defender it's like that combination of skills even if he's not great at any of them is still really unusual
1: yeah I mean I think the the one thing is he's he's definitely not quick in terms of his movements, and that could be an issue for him defending the pick-and-roll. But when he's in the right place in the paint, he does seem to have an impact on, on shots.
0: Yeah, I, I, and I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, some teams, and especially if he's playing on the second unit, we'll have to see how those, you know, there aren't a lot of, like, what I call dual threat, meaning pick-and-pop and, and pick-and-roll big men on second units. So he might be able to survive that just because there aren't that many guys who can really exploit it. Right. So unless you can think of any other rookies, so that's the first kind of group of guys, and we won't spend as much time on the other ones. But the second one for me is guys who are in there, who have finished their rookie year, who are going to be in their second year. And so for me, for them, the concern guys, unless they were super raw when they came in, is the guys who don't dominate. And so the guys who do, like Devin Booker, as we talked about, you know, that that's not really surprised. Was there anybody, I guess we'll start with, was there anybody that kind of concerned you in that way, that they, they weren't as good as they should be? There really wasn't among the
1: second year guys this year. I don't think it was. It, maybe Willie really Cauley Stein did not look super great out there, and I, I guess my subjective impression of how he played turned out to be even worse than his numbers ended up being when I looked at them because it just didn't seem like his effort was great. But uh, really, I think if we're going to look at anyone for this category, you have to go back to the 2014 draft and talk about Nick Stauskas.
0: Oh, yeah, Nick, Nick Stauskas. Like he was. He and Adrian Payne were in the fighting for their life in terms of their their fourth-year options, and I think Payne might have done enough, even though I didn't love what he did, that he might have done enough to do it, but Stauskas... So, the way that I like to describe this, unless you're at the bottom of the draft, is, like, if you are going to decline a guy's fourth-year option, you should be ready to cut him, just because not only is it really hard to retain them, but you're, you're basically making that statement, and... I'm close to the point where I'd say, yeah, it's okay to cut Nick Stauskas.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at their roster crunch. Obviously, that's more in the front court than it is on the perimeter. But is he a better prospect going forward than Hollis Thompson? I, I don't think so.
0: Yeah, and Hollis Thompson is going to be a free agent after the, I believe, after this year. I think he has one. This is his last non-guaranteed year on, on a hinky special. And stauskus there are two big problems with him. One is he doesn't do enough outside of shooting to be there, and that's why like, I was somebody who liked his ball handling and passing as an off guard in when he was in college. Like I thought that was something he could do at the NBA level. He hasn't done it yet. And then the second part is so okay. So let's say that means that he's kind of a shooting specialist. He doesn't shoot well enough. You know, he's not Anthony Morrow, and even Anthony Morrow can't get on the floor most of the time with Oklahoma City.
1: Right, and especially the first game. You know, when he came up. Came out to Vegas to meet the team and wasn't hitting shots. It's like, what, what's the point at this point? Like, if if this was a guy who we didn't, who wasn't a first round pick, who was just out here trying to make a team, like you would not say, okay, that guy should be in an NBA training camp. And that's that's a concern. I feel very bad about it because I, I agree that Staskis was talented, and I wonder if we could rerun his career without him ever going to Sacramento. How it might have ended up differently, but unfortunately, at this point, we can't.
0: I'm only going to throw it in as a tease. I don't want us to actually talk about it, but he was the inspiration for the idea that I wrote about draft reform, about the idea of players basically being able to take less to not play for the team that drafts them. And because he just got put in such a bad situation that it is it is interesting. Like, I think about that with a lot of different guys. I mean, Kawhi Leonard on the positive side, you know, he's a great worker, but the Spurs put him in a perfect spot. And you have that. And But somebody I wanted to talk about, another guy who, it could also be a system thing. I'm concerned about Kelly Oubre. I just I, I don't see it with him.
1: Interesting. What what didn't you see? Because I mean, I think I saw maybe. I guess it wasn't one of his better games. He was one of his better shooting games that I saw, and, and his three point shot looked you know really natural and smooth, and and that was encouraging. But I mean, it, it seems like he's one of those guys where he's probably going to be better when you put him in a more in a narrower box than here when you let him just kind of explore the studio space, so to speak.
0: Yeah, his his defense is still. Bad in my opinion it 's still shaky in that sense, and it 's concerning because he is a physically talented guy you know like I always get worried when a physically talented guy isn 't consistent on defense and also He's not at the level dribbling, you know, that that he needs, you know, to me, like, you just need to be at that level. Again, I'm going to bring up Anthony Morrow. Like, I think you need to be at a specific level to be more than a specialist. And to be a specialist, you have to be really good at that thing. So I'm not writing him off in any way. It's not like, oh, they should decline an option or anything crazy like that. I just, I want to see more from him than, than he has shown so far.
1: Yeah, I, I thought he was okay. I mean, he's also, he's, again, one of the younger guys. He's hes still only 20 at this point, so, you know, he's younger than a guy like Chris Dunn, even though he has a year of NBA experience, and that's a big advantage in a sit- setting like this.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's a little bit unfair residually, but I see a lot of, were they, no, they weren't teammates of Ben McLemore and him, of a guy who has the things to put it together, but I'm just not sure that he will.
1: And We didn't, we didn't talk about this guy with the rookies, but you know who I saw a lot of Ben McLemore in? healed yeah a similar thing where like the guys did these guys are highly drafted shooting guards and based on their shooting in large part and they didn't shoot the ball well in summer league and everyone and i remember writing about macklemore as everyone was saying at that point you know okay well i'm not concerned about his shooting i'm concerned about the fact that he's struggling in these other areas that he's turning the ball over a ton and his ball handling looks shaky that's that's a worry to me but he'll figure out the shooting And then, you know, he kind of figured out the shooting in the NBA, but he didn't really completely figure out the shooting in the NBA, which is part of why Sacramento keeps drafting shooting guards and trying to replace him and and presumably will shortly. So that's a a little bit of a concern to me with Buddy.
0: It's a concern to me with Buddy as well. And I think we're moving into a place in the NBA, and talked about CJ McCollum earlier, where... Basically, you want as much capable ball handling and decision making on the floor as you can. You know, if you can get that from a four like Ben Simmons or Dario Saric, that's great. But most teams are going to have to be getting that from two guards because there aren't many players six six and taller that can do that. And so, if you are below six six and can't really fit that box of being a secondary guy, somebody who can initiate some pick and roll, and you know when they get the ball in their hands, I'm going to be a little bit concerned. And Healed is that, and he did have one incredible scoring performance, which I saw like a minute of because I ran over to that <laughs> gym and caught a little bit of it. But it's concerning with him because he doesn't have that many ways to make an impact. And with the way that coaching is in the league right now, and just the level of talent, both in in terms of in on on the playing side, but also in the scouting and analysis side that weaknesses are so much easier to exploit now than they used to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess the optimistic way to look at it is basically the Pelicans were putting Heald in a role that he didn't play a ton of at Oklahoma in terms of trying to create out of the pick-and-roll and and introduce that second defender and have to navigate that, and he did show some ability to make passes out of that at times, although it was a lot of turnovers and a lot of shots off the dribble, so maybe it's the same thing as I talked about earlier with McCollum, where you know just a, a different style of defense that they're not used to facing, and they struggle with that at first, but it is a learning experience that ultimately pays off down the road.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a healthy way to think about it. Oh, one guy, he's a second-year guy but doesn't fit in that box of, you know, like, disappointing – I really like Rashawn Holmes. I don't know what the Sixers are going to do with him, but I just like him.
1: Yeah, I mean, his his room protection, especially in Salt Lake City, even more so than in Vegas, was just incredible. And, you know, he finishes at the rim. He can shoot the, the outside shot a little bit. Doesn't quite have three-point range. So even though it would be nice to see him box out like once or twice, uh, there's still definitely a place for him in this league and probably in a rotation.
0: Yeah, I see him as maybe at this point the fourth or fifth big who could eventually be more than that. And Philly just to me their biggest issue is just figuring out who can actually play in their group and I think they're probably gonna be bad again this year, but if they can assess, you know, if this is an assessment year, okay, how good is Sarich, what is his position? How good is Simmons, what is his position? You know, and then they're big men just sorting all that out and if they can get the right offer to trade one of them, then of course they should consider that. But what's challenging for them, and why part of the reason I'm so fascinated, is that while they have all the time in the world with their fours, because Sarich and Simmons are now both on four-year rookie-scale deals, the rubber is starting to get close to meeting the road on the centers.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got Noel eligible for an extension this fall, so if they are going to trade him, it's probably easier to do it before that deadline than it is to do it afterwards when he's going to be a restricted free agent. And then Embiid's only a year away from that, despite never having stepped on an NBA court.
0: Yeah, and with Noel, well, he's going to be a guy, and I'm going to do a lot of work, of course, as you are too, on the 2017 free agent class and all that kind of stuff. But one of the notable attributes of that group is that there is not a lot of rim protection. And like a lot of those guys were in this year's, in this year's group. It's just a weakness of that class. And so Noel could end up getting overpaid because of the scarcity of his skill set.
1: Yeah, all the guys who do it in next year's class are really just the restricted free agents. I mean, you look at him and, you know, Gorgie Jang has not been a good rim protector, although he's been a good shot blocker to the extent that those two are different skills. Uh, he would be the other guy I think you'd look at as a restricted free agent who fills that void.
0: Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, because, of course, Rudy and Steven Adams are not going anywhere. You know? <laughs> yeah, they, I,
1: but they're, I, but I they're But they're both that. getting
0: maxed, and I think people need to start getting ready for the idea of, of Steven Adams as a max player, but that's exactly what's going to happen. Yep. Yeah, I, I, and let's see. I, I think that one of the things that I find was really nice about Summer League and was seeing somebody like Jonathan Gibson do well. Except I, I hadn't realized, and I'm going to be completely honest here, I hadn't realized until last night that he's 28, but yeah. I was still really happy to see him do well.
1: Yeah, I didn't really know the Jonathan Gibson story that well until I actually coincidentally happened to be writing about how uh, Chinese basketball CBA translation, stats translate to the NBA because uh, of our partnership with Tencent in China and providing them some content that is specifically for the Chinese audience. And so, you know, I was writing about, okay, Jonathan Gibson led the league in 42. 42- with 42 points a game. Hey, what's he up to now? Oh, he's scoring 20 points a game for the Mavericks in the Summer League. Hey, that's pretty good. That's not bad at all. And then, lo and behold, within the next 24 hours, I think he had agreed to a contract with the Mavericks.
0: Yeah, I was in the building when he, I think he had 28 or 30 in one of the Summer League games, and he just can get buckets. You know, he's one of those guys. And I, I, talked to, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, but it was a little bit surprising to me to see Rick Carlisle and the Mavericks spend as much money as they have on point guards, considering their ability to find guys like Jonathan Gibson, who, you know, he's not going to be your starter probably, but he can give you 10 to 15 minutes a game.
1: So can I raise a hot take on this? Absolutely. I think the whole Rick Carlisle point guards and centers thing is overrated, because I actually don't think it really has anything to do with Carlisle. I mean, not not to demean Carlisle or say it has nothing to do with it, but isn't it just Dirk? Isn't that really what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, well, we're going to – I don't want I mean, to get that test soon, but you could be right that it's just that when you have a guy who – when basically when you have a guy with small forward – or better than small forward range at the four, that it just creates so much space.
1: I, to go to one of my favorite concepts, gravity. Like, Dirk has all the gravity in the world when you're using him in a pick-and-pop situation. Like, teams will not leave him. So the rest of the – rest of the uh, defense is, you know, four-on-four, four, and that's a much more advantageous situation for the offense, and I think that Carlisle is getting a lot of the credit for that, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, that could be true, but that also makes it me really dubious of them giving Dwight Powell the money they did. I no, I mean,
1: I, I, yeah, it doesn't change the conclusion that you raised at all. Yeah, that's,
0: but I, I think that's a very astute point to make it. Hit. And, wow, I, I people are going to hate me for doing this, but I'm going to make a connection to the Warriors because... The idea of basically Kevin Durant being the four from periods of time in their offense, and the, like his gravity is different than Dirk's, but that could just be terrifying.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, I still have not come up with a good explanation of how you defend a Steph Curry-Kevin Durant pick-and-roll, especially with Clay Thompson you know, and uh, Andre Iguodala on the court alongside him. I, I
0: think the only way to do it was with three guys, honestly. And yeah, and yeah that's, that's going to open up a passing lane, but... Your your worst-case scenarios in a Durant-Curry pick-and-roll are Durant shooting and Curry shooting. So if, you, if, if one of them is passing and making everybody else scramble, I think you have to do that. But actually, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll throw this idea to you now that I open the Pandora's box that is the Golden State Warriors, which is I wrote, a, I wrote a little bit of a piece, which is more of just a thought process thing while I was sitting at SFO waiting for my flight, of... One of the ideas that I'm legitimately fascinated with with this Warriors team is the idea, and I I had been fiddling with this actually with a 2K roster, and I've been thinking about this since December, they're one of the first teams I can ever think of that has five capable grab-and-go players that could actually be playing together. I think that you could conceive of transition offense completely differently if you only need to have one guy stay back.
1: And that's such a concept that has really developed in the last couple of years because I don't feel like a couple of years ago I, I looked at that at all, but now I'm I'm looking at all of these, you know, whether it's bigs who can handle the ball or wings who are, or guards who are good rebounders and making note of it and how important a skill that has become nowadays.
0: Yeah, and so where I was going with that is the idea that if you can have four guys basically, not, not go on the release, but go basically once they know that the rebound is going to be secured – then you, you gain the advantage of even if a team gets back on defense, you can still have a man advantage. And, and not only that, but if you're doing it with some of the best transition offense players in the world, then, like, because I was thinking about, okay, how do you counter this? And so one of the ways of countering it is have more guys back in transition defense, but all that does is it just opens up the defensive glass for the Warriors to make sure that they can have more guys run. Like, it's kind of, this, it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma in a weird sense.
1: You're going to have to give up something and yeah. it's uh, it's just a choice of what you're going to want to give up.
0: Yeah, and and so of course some teams will be able to have an impact on the on the offensive glass with somebody like Tristan Thompson or Ennis Canner or Andre Drummond. You know those teams are going to are going to be able to do that, but everybody else is going to have some weird problems with it.
1: Yeah, that's why that, that that's uh, they're going to be really good.
0: They they are going to be really good. And okay, so I'm going to because it's not a summary question, but I've been talking about this as I'm still out here for Team USA. I think that most people will say the Spurs, and that's totally fair, but I'm starting to think that in terms of pure talent, Utah might be the second-best team in the West.
1: I mean, the interesting aspect of this question is, you know, last year you would say that the Spurs' great strength more than anything else was their depth, and this year I think you would be hard-pressed to argue that they are deeper than Utah, which, you know, seems to go at least 11 deep, I think, in terms of rotation caliber players, maybe 12. And San Antonio's advantage now is probably the star power, the fact that Kawhi is better than any one Utah player.
0: Yeah, and the other, the, what's going to be a huge test for them is, I would say that in their what I expect to be their starting five, their two best defenders are their three and their two, and that's extremely unusual.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting spot to be in for them. I mean, I think Aldridge is, you know, a pretty good defender. I I think he's a little bit underrated at that end of the court. But, you know, certainly the the downgrade from Tim Duncan to Pau Gasol there is is pretty significant.
0: Yeah, and so I think that that Utah will, I doubt they'll have a better regular season record just because, first of all, they have some guys that have injury histories and their, you know, their play guard situation is going to take some time to resolve. But... I guess the, maybe the way that I would phrase it right now is that I, th- I think right now they 're the second toughest out, and also not only were they were reasonably deep last year, except at the position that sank them and they 're a lot deeper there now, but Joe Johnson and Dia yeah, really helped them like I think they add something that they didn 't really have before
1: yeah I mean a lot during the season, I heard talk from uh, david Locke, who 's a, a good friend of mine in the jazz radio play by play broadcaster that you know Utah really as much as everyone was talking about them potentially adding a point guard, which obviously they did this summer with George Hill, that also they could use another wing because it would just, first off, it would facilitate playing some of those multiple wing lineups they were using without a true point guard, and then also because it would allow them to play small a little bit. And now they've got that guy in Joe Johnson, but then they also have depth at point guard and also they have depth in the uh, the front court now when you add Diao and then the development of Trey Lyles, who it was an uneven summer league from him in terms of an efficiency standpoint, but in terms of showing skill as it was a great summer league
0: yeah and what I love about DIA for that combination beyond his personal chemistry with Rudy Gobert which I think is nice just to have that for, for Rudy and just in general because I think they'll play together well but they also know each other and like each other is that You can approach Trey Lyles in what I think is the most healthy way for a young guy, which is if he does well, you can play him. You know, because you you didn't make a commitment to Boris that requires you to play him. If if Lyles outpaces him, then fine. Then you have your third big and maybe you make Boris your fourth, or maybe you keep Jeff Withey and just have DL on ice. You know, you can do a couple different things. And if Lyles disappoints, you're not sunk by it. You know, you have another guy who's capable and who I think brings having another guy who can just be a savvy offensive player. Like this is something that we've seen with a couple of teams in recent history that you can reach a critical mass in terms of talented offensive players that just makes it work better for everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm still hesitant to say that I think what, what you can probably say about the Jazz is that they might have the second highest ceiling of anyone in the West, especially if Dante Exum is healthy and really takes a step forward in his development from where he was the last time we saw him on a court. I, I still don't think you can say that they have anywhere near the second highest like average outcome. I wouldn't put them. Yeah, I wouldn't the put them over the Clippers in terms of, in terms of average yeah.
0: outcome. Like yeah. the clip, the Clippers when you when you think about what they've done, especially the last couple of years when they've had injuries to at least one of their best players. I mean, I think the Clippers are maybe a weaker they're a weaker playoff team because they don't have a small forward. You know, I think they're a weaker playoff team, but as a regular season team, they'll be very good.
1: How, how dare you disrespect Wesley Johnson like that?
0: I still think Wes is a four, you know? I've thought, I've thought for a long time, I, I think that. and Well, the bigger issue, it's funny because I've been kind of a prominent clipper detractor for a long time, and I feel like a lot of that has been vindicated. But the, my issue with them is just that they don't have a reliable... Their, their best perimeter defender by far is Chris Paul, and Chris Paul is a wonderful perimeter defender. I'm not knocking him in the slightest. But I don't think you can survive... Unless you just get fortunate with your matchups, if you don't have a single strong defensive two or three, considering the strengths of the other teams in the West.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you certainly can win around that way, which I sure. think is the most likely expectation for the, like, the Clippers like Portland that they win around. Yeah, with uh, significantly worse perimeter defense, I, I think than the Clippers. So. Yeah, and, I, and we never really saw it because of the fact that they never matched up against one of the elite teams in the West. They went basically from everything's, you know, maybe the series against Portland is going to be tougher than we expected to just done in a matter of five minutes last year. So it was really hard to evaluate the Clippers in the playoffs.
0: This is another idea like, all along those lines that is, I don't know if it's hot takey, but if your goal was to win more than one round in the playoffs – I would rather be the six or the seven than the four or the five in this year's West, just because I think I assume that the Clippers and the Spurs are probably the favorites for the two and the three. And I think that they're both weaker than they were last year. And I just, I think that, you know, if let's say you're Utah, I would rather be the six than the four.
1: Yeah. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. It's uh it's one of those situations, you see this probably, you don't see this very often in the NBA where just the one is so much stronger than everyone else that the goal is to be away from them in the bracket. It's most more like what we see with USA basketball in uh, international competitions, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is, it's close to that. And I mean, Cleveland was kind of like that last year. I mean, people like me said it with Boston, you know, that Boston would have been better off basically being away from them as long as humanly possible.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, that uh, that all went to, out the window pretty quickly.
0: Yes, it did. <laughs> so I guess I mean obviously I, I hope that we'll talk before now and then. But I, I was talking about this with with somebody a couple days ago. But just other than other than max players, let's say, is there anybody who you're really excited intuitively about seeing them in a new uniform for this coming year?
1: Uh, I mean. You know, obviously I'm curious to see what Wade is going to look like in Chicago and and Rondo and then the the Rose noah combination moving uh, eastward to the Knicks and how they're going to play with Melo and and Porzingis. I mean, that's that's interesting. I I, I guess he qualifies as a max-level guy, but Dwight Howard in Atlanta is going to be really fascinating because that's such a shift in personality for them as a franchise.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about the Hawks a lot and also because – Basically the entire rest of their team other than Bassmore and Howard will be free agents after this year. And just are we going to really see this Hawks team do it because'm I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the difference you know now that they have a real you know a defensive rebounder I mean I, I, I like Horford better than Howard as a player right now, but he definitely brings some things to the table that that Horford does not.
1: Although here's the point that I omitted from when I wrote about the Dwight Atlanta move it, as well as Dwight rebounded individually, the Rockets were a worse defensive rebounding team last year than the Hawks were.
0: Hmm. That is interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily because of Dwight. I think it's more about the fact that they weren't getting much rebounding from the four spot or from the wing. But it's it's certainly interesting to know that he he is not a panacea in terms of defensive rebounding.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's definitely that's definitely fair. And... I'm another one, mostly I think at this point because we don't know how they're going to do their rotation. But if we see Eric Gordon and and Harden play together as the one and the two, like I and again I define positions by who you defend, not by you know by your offensive role. I, do, I I'm legitimately fascinated to see how that works.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, Zach Lowe mentioned yesterday and his. Pod, or I guess more than yesterday. I listened to it yesterday, the uh, podcast he did with Elvin Gentry about the possibility of them finishing as high as second in the, the league in offensive rating, and I, I hadn't quite imagined their ceiling to be that high, but it's, it's interesting to consider given that you know this is a team that has not really scored if all that efficiently offensively throughout the James Harden era because they just haven't had great guys shooting threes alongside him now that they do have you know a 40 percent three-point shooter in anderson and a guy who's you know high 30s usually in eric gordon what does that translate into offensively uh, along with having mike D'Antonio, of course
0: plus the other side's going to be exhausted because they have to run the court and have the basket so quickly <laughs> that they just run back the other way
1: <laughs> yeah that didn't seem to hurt the uh, the team's playing against the westhead nuggets though that seemed okay
0: it's also, I think this will be a, a fascinating test for me with Pau Gasol. Like, Powell, aging Pau Powell has been a figure that I've been more negative on, I think, than some people. But I'm very excited to see what he can do in San Antonio with that more offensively, because I think their defense is going to be a challenge for other guys. But if it can really work offensively.
1: Yeah, I mean, you think about it from a logical standpoint. You're taking, you're replacing Duncan, who by the the end of his career was kind of a shell of what he was offensively early on replacing him with Powell, a guy who's still uh, a capable scorer and then also a a very gifted passer from the center position all of that seems like it should produce better offense than you add in the fact that danny green has almost no nowhere to go but up offensively in terms of his three-point shooting and there's some some potential for them to get a lot better offensively if they get good point guard play
0: Okay, and then one more unfair question off the top of my head, but we've, I've been arguing about this with some people recently. It, let's say there was no issues in terms of salary or personalities. Who would you start at the five if you were Terry Stotts?
1: I still would start Mason Plumlee because I feel like – and this is a debate that we've had, I think, running back to the playoffs – I think that you can focus too much on his weaknesses at the detriment of his strengths, and everything he brings to the table is a playmaker, and you know most of the time is a finisher in the pick and roll. That that didn't translate in the playoffs, which is part of the reason we're having this discussion. And so I, I still don't think that Izzyli is is good a fit for that starting lineup, even though he corrects a weakness. I think you'd lose too much of a strength offensively.
0: Yeah, and I think that same argument extends to Ed Davis, where Ed Davis, he is a, a better defender, I think, probably than Mason Plumlee, but he isn't that much better, and he's substantially worse offensively just because Plumlee's ability when, when Lord and McCallum are on the floor to attack that offensively. And what I would say is that if Azili is what he was before his most recent injury, I would consider going the other way, but you have to prove it before that's true. You, know, that, that, you, don't, you don't get that assumption.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We we one of the justifications the Blazers used for the Evan Turner signing is that okay, well, basically we only had two playmakers on our roster last year, or at least in our rotation, in terms of Lillard and McCollum. And to me, that sells plumbly a little short. You know, I think he did emerge as a legitimate playmaker from the center position last season.
0: Yeah, and he did, he did a nice job attacking those you know kind of those four on three situations. And he I, the idea, and I've said it in these terms before, is like. If you can make two dribbles and a good decision, you can do well in that spot, and I I trust Plumlee to do that. He's maybe not against elite competition like in the playoffs, but you, you have to conceive of your team a little bit differently in those contexts, and I don't think they have that guy yet, so Plumlee's a good option.
1: But it's going to be interesting to see because I mean, this time a year ago, none of us were touting Mason Plumlee's playmaking ability. Like he had never done that in his NBA career. Certainly, I'm not sure he'd done it much in his career period. You know, I recall him talking last fall about, "Okay, I did some of this in USA Basketball, and that's the experience I'm drawing on." But that's one of the things that that makes Terry Stotts a great coach. I think is that he's willing to let guys experiment a little bit and and bring out new parts of their game. I think I forget what the uh, oh the the impression, expression that Neil OShea uses for it is that Stotts is an empowerer, which I guess is a little bit like the decider. But uh, he, he empowers guys to find new things in their game. Now, Festus is easily coming from Golden State, you know, Steve Kerr is a pretty empowering guy in his own right. So I don't know if there's going to be any transformation in his game. But if he is healthy, I'm curious to see what he can do.
0: Well, and the other part of the dynamic for the front court in Portland that I find so fascinating is their relative contract situation. So Plumlee is going to be a restricted free agent and is going to get paid, and Portland's probably going to have a really high luxury tax bill if they're the ones that keep him. Leonard, Myers Leonard just got paid. Festus Ezeli is basically on a prove it contract, and then Ed Davis only has two years left because unlike Alfred Camino who signed four years, he only signed for three. So how they structure all that and how that all works out and. Like, I, I, the other part of it for me, and I, I, that concerns me about, about it with them, is I like so many of the guys that Portland has, with a couple, m- really one notable exception. And But I think <laughs> that what Myers Leonard... I wrote a piece at the beginning of last season for Hardwood Proxies about how I love him as a counterweight. Basically, the idea that him playing him at center, it's part of the reason I love Towns and Porzingis at center, which we're not going to see as much of this year, is because you have to make some choices with them that, you're, that make teams really uncomfortable. And so I'd love to see him get some play with the starters because I feel like that has a lot more benefit when you're playing against a capable defensive center. And almost every capable defensive center starts now that Bismack Biyombo is not backing up Valangin.
1: Although he's, he's just such a weak rim protector in that role that it, it is challenging. I think it depends on the matchup. So, you know, yeah, for example, last started. year... Yeah, last year we saw him be very effective against Demarcus Cousins, uh, and, and is a because he's a post defender, he's pretty good. And in that scenario, you're not having to worry about as much about his rim protection. So we'll see how much Stotts is able to kind of mix and match and play guys in the best matchups for them. I uh, when I saw him in Las Vegas, I told him good luck with the uh, the rotation in the front court, and he gave me kind of a wry smile in response to that.
0: Yeah, it'll be exciting to see how that all works out because they have, it's kind of the opposite of their backcourt, depending on how we're counting Evan Turner, because they just have so many guys. And so, not only to keep them happy, but to figure out the best place to use all of them. But I think Stotz is adept at handling that.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's not the most enviable position for a coach, but he's a coach you would trust in that position.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's better to have a lot of guys than have no guys. So.
1: Yep. Yeah. Certainly beats the alternative.
0: Is there anything
1: else you want to talk about? I, I guess any takeaways from the uh, first couple of days of USA basketball practice?
0: Yeah, actually, I have one. While I do not see it as his position long-term, the perimeter game that Aaron Gordon is showing is very encouraging. Like, his his shot is better than it was, and his his off-the-dribble game is better than it was. And so while he is a four, and that will work a lot better, actually, at the four, I have been very encouraged by that.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, that team is just a, a giant mess right now, but I think if Gordon eventually becomes a four for them, he could, like, getting this, it's kind of a weird thing, where sometimes playing a guy out of position is a a really bad thing for for them in the short term, but if that kind of is the impetus for them developing parts of their game that they should have been developing anyway, and I I think Aaron Gordon would have anyway, you know, like, this isn't like, oh, he would never have done this before. It can sometimes lead to some positive eventual results.
1: I guess that's the Sun's hope with Dragan Bender.
0: Yes, it is.
1: All right, I do have one rant I want to go on here. So I, I wrote today about the top ten remaining free agents and their possible markets, and uh, at the top of that list with LeBron saying he's going back to Cleveland is j.r. Smith. And I struggled to find a scenario where someone with you know significant cap space could make him uh, would really be interested in him and be a compelling alternative to him to playing in Cleveland another season, depending on what their offer ends up being. And the one team I found was Boston. Uh, which could offer him like a one year, $12 million deal, you know, just to, probably just to force the Cavalier's hand, and all likelihood. could. But Chris Forsberg, our, our uh, Boston report, Celtics reporter for ESPN tweeted this out, and the response from Boston fans has been almost unanimously negative about the idea of adding J.R. Smith, including the probability it would hurt their chemistry. And I'm just curious, did these fans not watch the playoffs at all? Because the Cavaliers just won the championship with J.R. Smith. Like That, that happened less than a month ago, or I guess a little bit over a month ago. But that seems to be a, a problem with your argument that you can't win with J.R. Smith when they literally just won the championship
0: and he makes them better and he makes a direct competitor worse which is always right. a good thing and it can help drive a wedge between them and cleveland can't get better like that this is this is the thing about how tristan thompson got leverage, and his contract ended up being worth it for them but you know you get into those circumstances and jr i mean i think that there are different kinds of mercurial guys and i think he has made the transition from being more of like an active kind of an active negative which I I, I firmly believe the reporting he, that he was early in his career to being more of a character and you know some of that is that Cleveland had a locker room that was able to, to kind of handle that sort of thing and some of it is also you know that I think he he embraced being a role player more in Cleveland than he ever has before I'm sure playing with LeBron James helped that because it's a lot easier to take yourself as a role player when you're playing with the best player in the world but I think that he has really helped himself in that way and also he is smooth, and not only in his in his character, but the weaknesses in his game. Like he is a
1: much better defender now than he was before. But even when he was in Denver, I mean, those teams won all the time, and he did accept a, a role off the bench for them. So I think that Jr. is a bit unfairly impugned, partially because of you know some legitimately troubling events in his off the court life, and then partially because of the, his three years in New York, which. You know, we're a you know, higher spotlight, I think, than his time in Denver, it's it's fair to say. But uh, the, the one legitimate criticism that was raised is, like, I don't know if you can bring him in to play with Jay Crowder after what happened a couple of years ago in the playoffs.
0: Yeah, but I, I think those kind of things can eventually be resolved. I mean, we almost saw Mike Dunleavy play with Giannis. after yeah. After Giannis, basically, the nice, one of the nicest guys in the league tried to basically put him in the, like, 20th <laughs> row. So, you know, the, those types of things. And I, I think that... It would be interesting with the JR one because I mean, I, I mean yeah he 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 gave Prouder a concussion right like that
1: was because I I don't not think a, he not had, a concussion he uh, injured his knee and, and I don't think he required surgery but he was out for an extended period now it didn't matter because it was the right, uh, end of their season but could have been a serious thing.
0: Yeah, it's that that is you know it's legitimate in that sense but I I think that you know if. if you want to talk about how Brad Stevens is this 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 amazing coach? One of those challenges is keeping personalities in the line, and it would be a nice little test for him. And if it was on a one-year contract, I mean, the Celtics, and if and if it blows up, if he's on a one-year twelve million-dollar contract, you can trade him no problem.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly.
0: And it's not like he, yeah, he wouldn't have that like the implicit no trade clause because he wouldn't be getting bird rights or any of that stuff. So yeah, you could just move him. And I think that could be a, a lingering thing with this season is like I've been processing over the last couple of days, and it's, it's kind of people laugh because this is just so me. But I've been thinking about buyouts. And, like, thinking about, like, where that could where that could go. And it's, like, one of the most interesting groups of players is guys who signed one-year deals with a new team, and that team might wash out. Like, we don't know if they will. But, like, let's say the Knicks, you know, let's say the Knicks disappointed and somebody got hurt or whatever. You know, Brandon Jennings would be an awesome buyout candidate. But
1: who knows? Or even trade candidate at the deadline.
0: Yeah, he could be a trade candidate as well. I mean, if they were out by... if they Yeah, because that's the same timeline. So if they were out by then, you're right. It would be better to trade him than to buy him out. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure.
1: Same. Uh, uh, fun chatting with you, and good seeing with you, you last week in Vegas.
0: Yeah. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for coming on. Always great to talk to him. You can read him, of course, at ESPN Insider, and you can follow him on Twitter at KPelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Love talking with him. And... This is a really fun time. I'm actually back in Vegas covering Team USA and for the practices, and then I'll follow them around a little bit as they prepare for the Olympics, and then I'm actually going down to Adidas Nations in Los Angeles, and Real Jam Radio will, of course, be along for that ride, and then the Olympics, and then after that, we'll actually probably start probably looking towards next season, and of course, there's so much drama that's going to head into that. Basically, every team has something that's really interesting about that, and you can listen also to this podcast. I'm thrilled to be a part of the CLNS Radio family. You can listen to us through their great app or through any of their through their website, and you should also take a listen to some of their other great ta- content. And You should also really check out Blue Apron. It is something that I advertise because I believe in it, and I've been very impressed with their product. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals free, and that includes free shipping, and try out their product. It has been... A really wonderful part of my life for the last few months, and I I, I really I endorse it because I, I support it, and it's been really great for me. And of course, any input that you have on this podcast, positive, negative, in between, I really do appreciate it. You can t- hit me up on Twitter at Danny Larue, D A N N Y L E R O U X, or you can email Danny Larue MBA at gmail.com. I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I really do appreciate it. It does make the show better, and for those of you who responded that the audio was better last week, I am I'm now using that software again. So hopefully, it, hopefully it's good again. And if you have feedback, positive, negative in that way as well, because that is definitely a part of the program. So thank you so much for listening. Make sure to check out blueapron.com slash real GM. Take care and make it a great day. you still have the one Camry? This is the Camry One event. There's more than one, and with available features like JBL Audio and... Only one. Got it. No, Camry One.
1: Maybe if you come to the dealership. Right. Don't want someone taking the one Camry. Ooh, is it red? I really hope it's red. Wait, surprise me. Get a great deal on the one Camry that's right for you at the Camry One event. Get $2,500 customer cash, or qualified buyers get 0% APR for 72 months on a new 2016 Camry. Toyota. Let's go places. Visit gstoffers.com for details. Offers available in select states and N7516. Toyota, can I help you? Do you still have the one Camry? This is the Camry One event.
0: There's more than one, and with available features like JBL Audio and... Only one. Got it. No, Camry One. Maybe if you come to the dealership.
1: Right. Don't want someone taking the one Camry. Ooh, is it red? I really hope it's red. Wait, surprise me. Get a great deal on the one Camry that's right for you at the Camry One event. Get $2,500 customer cash, or qualified buyers get 0% APR for 72 months on a new 2016 Camry. Toyota, let's go places. Visit gstoffers.com for details. Offers available in select states and N7516.